this is Van Electric Ghost, and uh, we're live on the air with Haji Outlaw for the first time. Welcome to the Van Electric Ghost podcast. Thank you for having me. So, how Appreciate are you doing it. today? Uh, doing pretty good. Pretty uh, lazy well, Saturday. Well, it's uh, always great. It's relaxing talking to you. <laughs> Say again. Yeah, we're in uh, we're in New England, uh, so we're. Having a kind of a muggy day today, but it's all yeah. good. So we're going to talk today, but we'll let people know this is episode um, 931 of the Family Electric Ghost podcast. We've been on air since 2016. That's tracking on an Apple podcast. And this episode, we're going to talk about television, race, politics, and music. And we also want to let people know, you see up above, there's a icon that says listen on Newsly. We are a featured podcast on the Newsly platform. You can use coupon code GHOST and get one month free premium subscription. This podcast will be on Newsly later today. So I want to let people know that. And then uh, we'll put your your actual website back up. So for those okay. of, of, of the audience that's actually listening rather than watching, um, we want to let people know that we have the website um, https forward slash forward slash hotdoutlawhd.biz. And if people go there, what would they find? Uh, basically, it's uh, a feeder site for my book, uh, book series, the first book in the series about my life as a doorman in L.A. Uh, so you can get a free chapter of the book there. Join the subscriber mailing list and I can get you a free chapter. You can check out excerpts from the book. Well, that's cool. So like, we always encourage people to click on that when we're fully published. That will be clickable, so you'll be able to actually do a click through right now. You can't click on it, but that's what we like to have people who watch the podcast or listen to it when they look at it on all the platforms that we're on. We encourage people to click those URLs of the guests that we talk to. So, again, thank you again for being on the show. We maybe want, I don't know where you want to start with your background, um, but I want to let people know like you've written for television, the Eric Andre show, CBS, Comedy Central, NBC film commercials the numerous books including like hey doorman these movies suck and uh i guess bangles car Mangles car, to, yeah pretty, yeah the way i wrote it on that for that book version it's <laughs> like the a french but um you, you produce music cool yeah. you produce music for cool keith chris crack and and yourself that uh, so you've been a comedian for over 15 years and uh, maybe wh where do you want to start with your career? Because you had like a varied career. Oh, uh, I guess I'll start at the beginning of stuff. Uh, I guess around high school or going to college, I was always played. I'd never done any comedy or like acting or anything like that. Basically, just I played baseball and uh, going to college, my major was going to be electroengineering. Uh, but once I got out of college, well, actually in college, I started making music. I got a MPC beat machine, was making music there, but I never thought about doing comedy. It's once I got out of college and I got a regular job and I was like, oh, this isn't fun at all. Uh, and I, I saw some open mic stuff in Chicago, which is where I'm from. <laughs> and uh, I was like, let me go, let me go check out this open mic one night. And the girl I was seeing, she had tickets to go see The Roots. And I was like, can I, I want to skip it and go do this comedy. She's like, you're going to skip seeing The Roots? And I was like, yeah, I think I am. I think I, I've seen them before. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And then everything kind of snowballed from there. That's where I met uh, a lot of the guys are very comedians now. I met Hannibal Burris there in Chicago. 
uh, TJ Miller, Dion Cole, mm-hmm. a lot of different people. And I ended up moving to LA uh, for writing. I think Hannibal moved like a year before to New York. Uh, so it was in LA where I started kind of getting in the system, getting into television writing, uh, which is a weird, it's a weird dynamic as a big black dude trying to write for getting into writing TV, especially if you don't write anything that's black. Uh, it was like, I think I moved out there in 09. So it was right after the, <laughs> yeah. writer's, the last writer's strike. Uh, so my writing got attention. I got signed. Oh, with, wow. Uh, yeah, with Three Arts and CAA was my agency. But like, I never got any real work through them. Wow. That was always through connections I had through Hannibal, through Eric Andre, through other people I knew in the business. Uh, so that's kind of where I started getting into comedy. That's the, I guess that's the beginning of it from engineering, baseball to stand up. That's interesting because you were in those those pro organizations, or you're 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 you're, you're like a BMI. I'm a right. I'm a musician. You know, you you were probably familiar with that, and yeah. you weren't getting work except for your connections that you had these like personal connections, and you were getting better better results from that. Is that kind of oh. a commentary on on like the race situation in the industry? I think I believe so uh, because I was noticing well first thing that happened was like I when I signed with three arts and then they sent my writing out to agencies and they started with CAA and CAA wanted to meet. And so all of a sudden within one month, I went from having nothing to having two managers and four agents and everyone was just sending everything out and going everywhere. And I was going to all these general meetings at all the major networks multiple times. And the first thing I noticed was there was never a black dude in any of the meetings ever. Like the closest was, <laughs> There was a diversity person at NBC, it was a black woman, and her, I guess her assistant was brown, but he had straight hair. So I don't know if he was like Indian or something or what it was, but that was the closest I saw to any black people anywhere. And then when I wasn't getting any work, I was looking around at other people I knew were working and all the other black dudes, I'm like, they were A, they worked on black shows, or B, they were usually overqualified. For, for anywhere, like when Dion mm-hmm. Cole, I know he got Conan O'Brien, he had already been in multiple movies, he was touring, so he didn't need that. When Hannibal got 30 Rock, he was already been on TV, I don't know, two, three, four times for stand-up, he had been in some small movies, so and he was touring, so he didn't really need that. And I was like, oh, I started seeing that pattern of being like, oh, I kind of get it now, all right, yeah. So it's kind of like the black writers and actors and production people have to kind of network themselves w- without, you know, the general um, industry is, is ignoring the talent and you have to kind of have this kind of connection thing, which, you know, I found like I'm in software engineering and the same okay. thing happened. I've been in it 25 years. Every time I walk in a room, I'm the only guy who looks like me, unless there's guys yeah. from India. And you know they're not yeah, they're yeah. not African Americans, <laughs> you know. Exactly. So so it's like yeah. like twenty five years, and I never see anybody that looks like me. I I go to schools trying to get kids to get into it, and more kids are getting into it now. But it's like mm-hmm. it's like come on, you know. <laughs> it's like it seems yeah. like they they just don't don't want to, you know. They want to stay like a Bill Gates, Steve Jobs kind of world. And, and I guess it's the same thing in, in entertainment. They like those, they want to, that kind of zone is like, okay, you guys just want to be these guys. They, they, they went to the same schools and on the golf course together. <laughs> exactly. I just, I remember I had a meeting for 
it was a uh, Tim Allen had a new show, not the old Home Improvement, but the new one he had that I think it was on ABC. Mm-hmm. Oh, that other uh, one. And my, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember I was it was a showrunner meeting for that one, and it was on the CBS lot, and I knew that lot a little bit. Uh, but I don't know if you know those lots. Like they don't mark the streets, they don't mark the doors. So they gave me a room, oh, but wow. there's no room number. So I walk by oh, the geez. office once. I see a guy in there walking into the hall, and like no one else is there. I walk back, and he sees me again. He's like, "Are you Haji?" I'm like, "Yeah." I'm here for, are you so-and-so? Yeah, I'm here for the meeting. He's like, oh, great. And I saw a big exhale, like, oh. Like, like, like he didn't expect me to look like me. It was that, like, yeah. deflated, like, you know how you go on a date <laughs> with someone and like, they, don't, they don't look like their profile picture? It felt like one yeah. of those. And I was like, oh, there we yeah. go. And I mean, that happened to me a bunch of, a bunch of really? yeah. I mean, I, that's a common thing I think it happened to us, but go on. Uh, and so my manager told me exactly what they wanted me to write for. It was like one character. He's like, they're going to ask you this, this, this. Like he knew all these details. They did none of that. They just showed me a clip from the show. It was like, what you think? I thought it was pretty good, blah, blah, blah. They asked me nothing my manager thought they would. It was like they, as soon as they saw me, they were almost like, oh, ah, no, we don't think you're right. Like, I think, yeah. I think in general, they just have a look of someone who looks like a writer. And a big black dude yeah. is just like, oh, I don't, I don't think he's a writer. Maybe you should look like you should look like Woody Allen. <laughs> exactly, a squirrely looking white dude is probably the perfect, perfect way to get in. It's funny what yeah. way, you got to look like Woody Allen or you look like uh, Seinfeld, um, but um, yeah. <laughs> something like that. But um, yep. but you know the the thing thing I remember, I went to a meeting. I my my three piece suit back in the eighties when I had to do it like that back you know late eighties. And and I walked in the room and I had the interview on the phone and they were all really excited. I show up in in, in you know in the lobby, and some mm-hmm. lady comes down, looks like a secretary. She's looking all over the room, and she doesn't think she that, that Keith's there. My name is Keith, but like she can't find me, right? Because she doesn't expect me to be a black dude. And then yeah. when she sees me, and then then the whole thing kind of went south. It's like okay. The phone interview was great, but then when I got there and they saw it was, it was I was mm-hmm. I was me, then they didn't like it. So that's that's the thing we had to deal with. And we still deal with, but yeah. you know, yeah, the Supreme Court doesn't think that's that's a problem. But okay, yeah, yeah, good old Clarence <laughs> Thomas, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was embarrassed. He said he was embarrassed by his time that he felt like he okay. Well, so you're going to shut the door and everybody else because you were embarrassed. You 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 got through. Exactly. Like, you were so embarrassed that you that people. Had, like, <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole argument makes no like, sense. It's like it's like oh, someone created this this gap for me to go through, and then as soon as he gets through, he's like, oh, forget the rest of y'all, close that gap up. Like, okay, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's even talking about maybe interracial marriage isn't isn't valid, and he's married to a white woman. So I guess it's only yeah. for him. That, yeah, like that he's, things he's a are good. One. He's the special guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, like, yeah. like kind of like the. OJ Simpson mentality, like, oh, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Like, okay, all right, okay, whatever, man. Yeah, yeah. you're OJ until you get uh, people think you kill somebody, then you're not, then you're like, you get to the same category as anybody else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they obviously show up to the black churches all yeah. weekend and everything. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta you gotta start getting some support, but um, yeah. So it's interesting that that you were able to get into into the industry. Uh, because of your other connections, but that seems to be like frustrating for a lot of people. It's like, well, how how do you get those connections? You happen to 
you know, find a way by starting with your music, right? That's how you started, right? You started doing music and then you put yourself out there and then that caused attention. And I've kind of always told people like, you kind of got to put yourself out there because if you don't put yourself out there, nobody's going to find you. Right. Is that, is that kind of like your advice to people? It's the same thing. Like, especially if you're someone black, they're, they're not looking for anyone who looks like you. So you really have to be out there. And like, if I was giving advice to people who wanted to get into television or entertainment industry, I would say do as many jobs you can be a cinematographer, director, writer, actor, do everything. That way they'll know that even if you, even if you're so-and-so of one thing, you can do two or three or four other things. And they're always looking for ways to cut corners. So the more you can do, the better chance you get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like when I got into music, I got into production, you know, I've gotten like, like an Akai force, but like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a synthesis. So I, oh, okay. I use like Moogs. I, I play keyboards and so on. And, yeah. I, and I do sound design. And so I oh. do sound design, I do production, I do stuff like that. But then they got into podcasting because there's like some guy in new york a, a, a guy like did a podcast back in 2016 he found my soundcloud and he said hey, i'm going to interview you because you have all these underground songs and, okay. uh, and he and he was interested so we we did the first podcast back in 2016 on an app called spearman and uh, we liked each other so much we did a combined podcast about music for like six months and oh, i had wow, never okay. even known about podcasts and i said oh i, I should actually do this and and people were saying, well, why are you spend so much time podcasting? Well, it draws people to my brand, and so it, like people find out about Phantom, and it's a podcast, and it's my band, and I'm a producer. So then I end up oh. getting like work because I, I I just like people find out about me, and then it draws me into this whole thing where I try to weave music into my podcast, even when I'm talking to a CEO where I'm talking to a life coach, oh. I try to weave the concept of creativity and how it can be used for everything. And so I found a way to thread the needle, mm-hmm. but that's kind of like, you know, my story, but I, I think it's like, you got to figure out how you can engage in this kind of internet world you know, of all this social media and all these other things. And I love the podcast because it's more than 30 seconds, right? Yeah. You got reels and Instagram, TikTok, they're all like very short, short form, but this form mm-hmm. is kind of different. It's still, it's a long form in a world where there's very short form stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah. that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it is cool. And also at worst, worst case scenario, you just shorten down a little bit and you send out little clips from the podcast that gets people into the yeah. full podcast. Yeah. So yeah, that's my smart. That's, that's a good move. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you run, yeah. You run a TikTok, you run a real, you run a short and it, you throw in like a, like a landing page and it draws people in. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you, so you can still use those methods. But it's uh, it's it's really interesting, you know how how you have to look at things. But you, you talked us how you got into TV comedy writing, and um, how did you find that you had the knack for comedy? Because not everybody, like a lot of people, feel comedians actually tend to be really good actors, you know, because they yeah. seem to be have a lot of depth. So do you feel that comedy has like like an edge in writing for at least for you, or, or maybe you can talk about comedy as a, as a writer? Yeah, sure. Um, as far as writing, well, first of all, as far as acting, I don't, I, I don't think I'm good at acting at all. <laughs> I'm just, I have like a, I'm more like a Steven Seagal mm. when it comes to acting. <laughs> like I got one, one note, one toe, that's all I got. Uh, but for as far as writing, I'd say the first time I kind of realized that I was kind of getting somewhere, I, I think I was still in college and I was, I'd always watched comedians my whole life. 
Uh, like I remember, I go way back. I was uh, in the '80s. Eddie Murphy was always huge to me uh, as a kid. I still mm-hmm. remember sitting on my aunt's floor, and I hear the uh, Tonight Show Johnny Carson music. And I remember the first time I saw Eddie Murphy, I was like, "Who is this black dude with the skinny tie? He's really funny." And then after that, he like that was when he was like early on Saturday Night Live, and he was blowing up, getting bigger, and my my mm-hmm. parents weren't together, so I was staying with my dad one weekend, and I went to go see Eddie Murphy Raw, and I'm like nine years old maybe, oh, and my wow. mom was like, "There's no way you're gonna go see <laughs> Eddie Murphy Raw," like she said, "That's just not happening." She, she was a, she's a Richard Pryor fan, so she knew exactly what it was. My dad, I don't know if he yeah, didn't she, know. She knows what it's about. Exactly, and my dad, I don't know if he didn't know or just didn't care, but I was like, he's like, sure, we can go see, we can go see this Eddie Murphy thing. So I just remember going in there, watching it, and like 10 minutes in, I looked at my dad, I was like, I don't think I should be watching this. But it was like, I think that was kind of like a sparking moment for me to like want to get into comedy. So every time I'd watch comedians like Def Jam or whatever, I always thought to myself, when I'd see like Bernie Mac or someone, I'd be like, I know I'm not that funny, but I can write something that good. And so that's mm-hmm. the idea that always sparked for me because there, there was no one I, I ever saw was like, this guy's a better writer than me. Uh, so that, that was kind of mm-hmm. my kind of kicking off point for getting into stand-up comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was a kid. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a child of the 70s. And so my mm-hmm. father had all these vinyl Bill Cosby records. And, uh, and we grew up listening to those. And, and then, uh, you know, then we ended up hearing Richard Pryor. And then, you know, we were probably too young. But my, I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and he used to let me listen to, to it. And even though uh, my parents okay. would say, you're not supposed to listen to that. And my brother would say, okay, yeah, I'm going to let you listen to it. <laughs> but it was like, yeah, there was a revelation when I'm hearing like Richard Pryor. And, like, and even when he was on TV for that short time with yeah. the, the, his show, yeah, I remember being able to see that. And I was like, wow, that, that, that was so cool. I mean, it's kind of like, it was really groundbreaking to me. Yeah, it was basically the precursor to Chappelle yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Yeah, yeah, that was. I remember I watched those Richard Pryor. I think I got them on DVD somewhere. But it was after Chappelle show. I heard about that Richard Pryor show. I was like, oh, let me get the get those episodes. And I was like, it was. You could tell. Then. Yeah, you could tell he was, he was, it was his usual brilliance. But you could also see where he was kind of just mm-hmm. handcuffed by being on. I think it was on NBC or on, on screen yeah. TV. Or like he can't. Like he couldn't get in the stuff he really can't wanted do to do. You could tell. Yeah. Yeah, he was sneaking as much as he could in. He could sneak mm-hmm. things in because he's really brilliant that way. So he, he tried to push yeah. as much as he could. It's mm-hmm. kind of, but it's like, you know, uh, it was just interesting because, you know, I grew up watching like Sanford and on Red Fox, you know, and, and it, no, re- realizing that Red Fox live is nothing like Sanford and Son. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, it's really, it's you know, not cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so so, when you got uh, maybe you want to talk about television and what you think is uh, good on television and why? Because I think that's an interesting thing. Because like today, there's so many channels, but is there really anything on? And maybe you can talk about what your opinions are. Oh yeah, sure. Um, I'm really picky about what I like on TV. Uh, I pretty much, I don't really watch anything on network for years. I think the last thing I watched on network TV or comedy wise was probably Parks and Rec. Uh, but the stuff I think has probably been really brilliant nowadays. Uh, Succession was probably the best show I saw on 
TV in the last few years. Uh, let me see what else. Uh, what I did, I always thought was overrated was Game of Thrones. That was <laughs> the first two, three seasons of that. I, it was well written. And then I could see after that season with the Red Wedding, you just saw the writing go straight down. It went, it went downhill. And once, once they were past the books, <laughs> all they did was just regular TV tricks. And it was annoying because I had a bunch of friends uh, who weren't in the industry who just like loved Game of Thrones. And I kept telling them, you're not going to like the ending of this thing before it was over. Cause I'm like, the writing's already, it's out the window. It's gone. And then everyone's mad. Oh, the finale sucked. I'm like, were you paying attention the last three seasons? They didn't really care. And I, and I, I knew, I knew stuff yeah. from the inside, yeah, from the inside perspective. We're like, once you get to a network TV, at least five seasons, all the, the, like the lead writers, they're going into syndication, which means they've now got money to buy a house in Malibu. So they don't care. So that that's what I, that's why HBO they always had that. In the... Exactly. That's why <laughs> HBO the fire in the belly thing. thing. Precisely. Yeah. Because uh, like that's why I think HBO they they used to have it. I don't know if they still do, but they had a thing where like they only wanted a show to go for five seasons because they knew at that wow. point the creators they're it they're, they're mentally checked out, so they're not trying that hard anymore. Uh, so. That's kind of where I'm thinking. Rick and Morty is another on the animated side I love. Uh, mm -hmm. What's on TV now? That's probably the biggest ones. Breaking Bad was my favorite TV show. Of, probably the best TV show I've seen. Uh, number two I got is The Wire. Mm -hmm. and, and after that, the, the Sopranos or anyone else can try and duke it out. Uh, but those are probably my two favorite. And Chappelle show is the funniest show. Yeah, I've I don't seen. know. I, I lived... I had some time where I actually lived in Japan and I got really into anime and then I got yeah. into like K drama and Japanese dramas because I was it I was living there. And then yeah. I, I, I've been addicted to that ever since. Like I watch a lot of Asian cinema, a lot of K drama, because what I liked about it is they, they kind of go maybe one or two seasons and then they go and the writers go create another series. And so it yeah. never really goes like very long and so you get like very different ideas so i'm watching one now with some ladies like reincarnated and she keeps on coming back and living her life and they have these really interesting concepts that i don't see in western tv they do things oh. that westerners don't do from an eastern perspective which is kind of cool for me but oh. yeah that's, that's interesting i'd like to check some of that out because i remember i watched one that was really good there's only two seasons uh attack on titan yeah and that, that was really good and the same thing that i guess the asian market does the uk england they they only try and go a couple seasons then they go on to something mm -hmm. else which is cause that way nothing ever gets stale yeah but i think is it's good but like yeah. i know in america the it's just money driven so they're as soon as they get anything they like and it's doing well they just keep chucking money at it to make more, 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 more. Yeah, yeah. You got like ten. You got twenty seasons of like uh, CSI, whatever city they say it is. <laughs> exactly. You know, you just keep yeah. on doing it again, doing it again. But it's like okay. But uh, so, what what are your film favorite film directors? Oh, uh, Tarantino's probably my favorite ever. Uh, second would be Scorsese. Uh, and that, that's that, mm. that race is pretty darn close. Uh, Christopher Nolan, mm. 
uh, Dennis Bellabanu, the guy who did Sicario and Dune, uh, mm. Spike Lee. Which Spike Lee film is your favorite? Which Spike Lee film is your favorite film? Ooh, uh, that's going to sound corny, but it, it's probably do the right thing. That or the twenty fifth hour. That's the yeah. one that like yeah. some people missed. That 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 was. Yeah, I like twenty fifth hour. That's was very good. Yeah, just the, yeah, that's uh, an awesome film. Uh, he showed, yeah, he showed how he could stretch. You know, can everybody say, "Oh, he's he's a kind of niche guy," and then he went and yeah. did that, and it's like, well, hey, he's not as niche as you think. Because you know, she's got to have it and then do the right thing. Uh-huh. Like they're not in the same place. You know, they're like no. he, he shows a, a diversity of what you know what he can do. But uh, yeah, I was a kid in college when I saw do the right thing, okay. and I'm like. And I was listening to the public enemy on it, you know, and I was like, I was like really into public enemy at that time. Cause they had just came out with like nations a million. And mm-hmm. then they did that song fight the power. And I was like, yeah, I was wearing the flavor flavor medallion, yeah. <laughs> Africa medallion, you know, yeah. and the, uh-huh. and the clock about campus. I say, Hey, what time is it? <laughs> you know, but... Yeah. To remind me, my, my cousin's, uh, that was, that was also public enemy his favorite group. I think he was the one who kind of told me about the movie Fight the Power because he's like, I don't know, maybe six years older than me. But he's the one who kind of put me on. I was like, oh, okay, that, that movie was dope. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I love the Bomb Squad. Like the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Bomb Squad. You know, his production, good. the production team. <laughs> yeah, those guys were beasts. Before they put that, those sampling uh, legal, they changed the legals. They were probably the, the best and most diverse production team in hip hop. The fact that they could do all the Public Enemy and then he did Ice Cube's yeah. first album. They're like yeah. they're like in my kind of grandfathered in greatest production teams ever. Well, I like De La Soul. I like what they did with like De La Soul was dead. You know, I think De La Soul had another kind of vibe doing that heavy mm-hmm. sample, layered sampling. Yeah. And it, to me, it's like there's a real artistry when you look at like bands like Dale Soul and Public Enemy to the level of of the, the the just like the field recordings they would throw in, the backward tape mm-hmm. loop, and it's like George Martin level, Sergeant Pepper level stuff that they're doing. Mm-hmm. It was like fantastic. It, there's an art. It's it, it's really art. And uh yeah. and it, it's sad when the you know the licensing came in and kind of shut it down. But um no, I think there's a lot of art that you can get into that as a producer when you look at the the, the kind of sound painting. I, I, I'm a very much a person that looks at sound paintings and layering and the colors of what okay. you can do. And I'm mm-hmm. very much uh, inspired by, you know, Parliament Funkadelic and, you know, the Hendrix and other people, Pink Floyds of the world that use the studio as a canvas. And I thought that the Bomb Squad and those guys were doing like the same thing in hip hop. They were, period. I mean, the, the, the layers of, I think, I think they were the only, I think they were one of the only groups that Prince allowed anyone to sample him because he respected Chuck D and what Public Enemy was doing. Not just their content, but also their sound and how layered and diverse their sound was. He's like, yeah, yeah you guys can sell me. And he didn't let anyone else sample. Yeah. Yeah, Prince was very much into like musicians have to be musicians. But when he listened to them, he respected what they did. And so he, he actually saw the artistry where he was kind of like not into the Ice Ice Baby, just take that Queen Bowie mm-hmm. song and just, you know, rap over it. Yeah. That, that was like, that's not art. 
<laughs> I'm a big yeah, he just... and he used to go off on anybody that wasn't wasn't at the level that he thought they could be at, you know, and he, he I think that he'd respected what they were doing. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. So so when when you um <laughs> here's a cool question, like uh why have you never watched Friends? I, I can I can guess why, but maybe you tell us <laughs> Uh, I just remember it being on and all my white friends were watching it. And I, that at the time, I didn't watch Seinfeld either at the time. Because I, I remember, first of all, friends, it was just nothing was appealing to me. I literally, people described it. I was just like, no, I, I don't I don't get it all. But at the same time, I, I was watching Living Single, which those two, shoes, those two shows were competing at the same time to come out. And they're basically the same, same show. But I just, it was just all white people living in a spot in New York. I was like, I just, I just, I just don't care. I don't care at all. Uh, and I've never, I've never thought anyone was that funny except for Lisa Kudrow. She's the only one where I like, I'll see her something like she's good. Everyone else, I'm just like, I, I just don't get it. That was it. Yeah, I remember, I remember not really getting it because you know, I mean, I was like into the Cosby Show, and we know what happened to Cosby today. But, but like yeah. that, that to me was like. You know, I'm going to school, watching different world and all that stuff and all the spinoffs because, like, I was very much, you know, a kid that had grown up watching like the Jeffersons and, and, you know, uh, what's happened and stuff like uh -huh. that. And I just like the fact that we were able to show a middle class black family in that kind of light and then uh -huh. the positivity of it. And, you know, and initially in the 70s, a lot of the stuff that Cosby did was this kind of positivity. Um, Oh yeah. Uh, that you know now that's all been tainted, but um, but I like I was that was more appealing as a middle class black kid to me, you know, wanting to see that because you know I growing up seeing other things like okay, can we see something a little more, not stereotypical? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, I was the same way. That the, like the corny stereotypical stuff. It was like even as a kid, I was inherently like this is this feels inauthentic. It feels like you're trying to stick a you know. Uh, a square peg into a round hole like it, it didn't it didn't fit to me uh and i think i think it was sort of like that's why i was like i used to love the jamie fox show and other other shows that are like coming up the wayans brothers show but like it was interesting yeah. to me and those people were funny where i friends i'm just like who is funny on this thing this guy joey doesn't seem funny i don't i don't get any of the i don't get any of the funny funny in this thing at all but it seemed like kind of like to me they're continuing kind of like you leave it to beaver kind of my mentality right you know it's like okay like a brady bunch mentality it's like i'm a child yeah. of the 70s like a gilligan's island mentality. you know it's like yeah. like what is that it's like okay make it so 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 much like that they're like okay that's that's antiseptic that's okay that'll pass by all the sensors no trouble no no issues mm -hmm. here no controversy <laughs> yeah actually i actually read a book um about when they were when they were making the show Lost, executives they said for years, ever since Gilligan Island, they had been trying to make other editions or an updated edition of Gilligan's Island, and that's what Lost was. Like they, they just have like I think executives they have a template of heavy. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. They just they take one template that works at one time and they keep trying to do it over and over again. You see it with actors too. Ever since James Dean, yeah. every big white actor looks like some version of James Dean. Brad Pitt looks like a blonde version. <laughs> James Franco looks just like him. Josh Hartnett. They keep taking the same people. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. 
Yeah, where they got to keep on remaking classic movies. It's like, okay, either going to just keep on redoing the same thing. Like, where's, where's all the new yeah. ideas? You know, it's like, it's very frustrating. Because even when you get into, into music, you get people just, okay, I'll just remake this song. Like, I think of yeah. Tracy Chapman, you know, Fast Car. That got remade. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm happy she's getting the royalties from the remake. Yeah. But it's like, I'd rather listen to a new Tracy's Chapman song. Then I say I listened to that when it came out. And I, I understand mm-hmm. it. But there's all this like energy into this remixing things that already exist. And I'm kind of like, like I was a big Prince head because I loved what Prince was willing to challenge the industry and actually do what he wanted, which was yeah. not do Purple Rain over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, he the, the industry his label would have been happy just do another Purple Rain for the next two decades. They would have been happy, but the next album was different. And then by the time he hit the 90s, he went off on tangents. He was just like, of just different yeah. sound everywhere, like experimental stuff. He just did everything just musically he wanted to do. And at that point, the industry kind of was like, uh, he was kind of pushed aside. They were promoting other people. And he just he got kind of, he was always a genius, but they treated him like he was almost a second-class citizen. Well, the problem is, like, there's a whole story because I'm a told Prince head, but to deviate, like he actually was told, like, oh, you, why don't you just do another Purple Rain, right? So he actually mm-hmm. did. And in the vault is a Purple Rain 2. He actually oh. presented it. And then he said, guess what? It's not coming out. I just wanted to show you I could do it, but I don't want it coming out because I don't, I can, I can do that because I, I know yeah. how to play. I can do anything I want. I just, you know, I prove it to you. I can do it. And he threw it in the can. Now one day Warner's oh, wow. gonna re-release that because they want they want to push it, but 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 yeah. yeah, he 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 could do anything on demand, he's like a Hendrixian level. The thing about Prince is like he's one of the most experimental musicians next to Hendrix that ever got into the pop into the top. And yeah. so that's what they didn't know understand that he was in the same kind of zone as a Hendrix, as a Morrison, all those kind of guys. Very experimental guy that happened to be able to hit, make hits, but that wasn't yeah. his motivation. If he happened to write a song that was a hit, that's fine. But that wasn't, you know, he just, well, that's where his head was. And if people matched where his head was, then he'd get a hit. hit. But when he, you know, suddenly he doesn't want to do that anymore, then, you know, he'd drop off. But he'd be able to come back sometimes. And people would say, oh, he came back. Like, he was never gone. He was, you just weren't yeah. buying it. <laughs> I was buying every album they ever did until he died. And he never stopped. Yeah. It's just people, like, would drop off because they didn't hear what they wanted. Yeah, and he already did that at concerts too, where everyone would always say, I want to hear Purple Rain. He did like, I think it was him just in a piano for a whole tour. And I don't think he did Purple Rain songs after Purple Rain for like 20, 30 years. And I think he just dropped like one or two songs. Like he didn't, he just did like, I've done that. I don't want to do it anymore, which is why he's such a great artist. But the industry doesn't care about that. It's what they're money. You know, you think about like a Miles Davis, you know, he was the king of bebop. And then he created fusion, right? And then, mm-hmm. he, you know, in the later years, he did this kind of funk fusion, new wave thing. And, you know, yeah. people liked it or not, but he, he actually did pretty well with it. So he was like in all the major ages. And, you know, the industry initially, you know, when he went into fusion, they were saying, oh, that you're like a Judas or something. Like, you can't, because they, like, they acted like fusion, like bebop is supposed to be like the real jazz. And then when he moved to fusion, they were like, oh, you can't do that. And he said, why not? 
I do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, why can't I go into something different? It's like, and they all these purists. And now they, after the fact, they say, oh, that's a great genre. But at the time he created that genre or was one of the people in the genre, they were slamming them. And it was like, you know, and Prince had an affinity for Miles. I got like tapes of him playing with Miles. Um, the Miles oh, wow. got together in the late 90s, oh. you know, before he died. Yeah. And they actually have their songs that they did together. And it really shows the synergy. And he actually did stuff with George Clinton, too, because I was a hero of his. And, uh, yeah. you know, he just loved, you know, anybody that was in the, you know, in that kind of zone. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know all that. All right. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. If you dive into the Prince's catalog, you'd be surprised at the people he actually, the stuff that's in the vault. I mean, he has a full mm -hmm. album with Stevie Nicks, not just the song he did. He did the full, mm -hmm. a full album. Never got put out. He did stuff with punk rockers like Who's Could Do out of Seattle. Never yeah, came out. Yeah. He has like tons <laughs> of stuff from multiple people, multiple genres that's eventually going to come. He has so many songs that are in the vault that they're going to blow <laughs> out most of the modern musicians, the level of stuff that he has in the vault. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. I, I got to download so some of that. So what do you think about it's, music? It's, music what, what do you think about music today with like AI? Like I'm, you know, being a, a kind of a, oh. I'm a keyboard player. I'm a guy that plays original yeah. music, and you know, some people say, "Oh, it's kind of like what happened with hip hop." And I say, "I don't know about that, because it's still a person making choices." Yeah. In hip hop, right? But AI, you're letting the computer make the choice. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the idea of AI doing anything. To me, it's it's basically a copyright infringement. Anytime you do it, because you're you're essentially mm. having a computer do what a person can do, but you don't want that person to do it. So to me, it's it's like you're bringing in kind of like a scab or like crossing like a union or something. Like you're bringing in something that that it's it's to me it's, it's just it's it's completely unethical. Um, yeah, you're exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like you're crossing a picket line, but you got a robot that's just gonna cross it and do what you want to do. Uh, I, I don't like it at all. I don't like it for for writing. Uh, I don't like it for music. Uh, I've heard some of the AI where they like they can feed it like all this. I saw one clip they had like Eminem doing some different genre, but they have his voice modulated based yes. on past works to do it. And I'm like, yeah, it sounds like them until you really listen to it, and you're like, no. You know, like it doesn't it, it, it like it's like a superficially it's him but it's not it's not really him if you listen to it, you're like no it's not I, I feel like if you if you played like if, if like if eminem's kid was like seven years old and heard an ai of him the, this kid would be like oh that's not my dad at all yeah yeah. there's no way it, it feels it's, you know, it's, you know, it's unethical in that yeah i mean yeah. it's unethical if you think about like if eminem he might have never chosen to do that and then you make him sound yeah. like he did. And then kids yeah. might think he actually did it, right? And so to me mm -hmm. as an artist, like I don't want to be taking my voice and doing something unauthorized. I, I got to clear it. I think you need to clear it like a sample. I think yeah. you, you should, the right author, art, artist, if you're going to use my voice, you, that's me. So you shouldn't yeah. use my voice unless I clear it. And you can't just yeah. randomly grab it and say it's yours. Exactly. I, I agree. And I think the percentage 
for what you should get if you're using AI for the artist they're using should be way higher than what it normally is when you sample somebody. Like, cause you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're, you're not just doing something they've already done and already recorded. You're taking something and creating it in their voice. So I feel yeah, like yeah. If, if you're getting, yeah. like you should be getting 90, 90% of that check <laughs> should be coming to the actual artist. Yeah. Yeah. I really think it should be like a really high percentage. And the other thing is my, yeah. my daughter's a graphic artist. There's a lot of people mm -hmm. that do art with AI and don't understand that it's grabbing published artists off the web and grabbing oh. their work and acting like it made it, it created it. It's not, it's just grabbing what's out there in the universe of the web and, and pulling mm -hmm. it based on your suggestion. And if they can grab it, because a lot of graphic artists don't have digital rights management. So yeah. they got their work out there and, and these programs can grab it. And so like a lot of graphic artists are going to have to go out and actually get into digital rights management, like the way musicians have and, yeah. and, and actually put copyright strikes on people. And, you know, those type of artists had never thought of having to do that, but now because yeah. of AI, you know, you got to start doing that for like all your art. Yeah, you have to because with AI, they're just going to keep stealing from you forever. Yeah. Yeah, until you register, yeah. you have to start registering. Like artists are going to have to get together, kind of unionize in a way, you know, get into pro organizations and say, this is, these are the these are the standards, these are the rules. And if you, you mm -hmm. know, and I think it's, you know, happened with sampling and it's going to force yeah. it with this, to, in my opinion, it's going to force the issue because you know, it's just like, you know, when you get into streaming, you know, there's a lot of, what, what's your opinion about streaming and royalties versus like syndication? Because I think that's been a big issue for writers, right? In in your industry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for, for writers, you're, you're getting, you're getting screwed heavily with streaming. Uh, so I had, I had a buddy who was writing for Kevin Hart show and this was uh, when they started, I think it was, I think that show, the husbands of Hollywood, uh, that show. And I remember him saying, because after it sold, I think it was on BET, but after it was sold and it went to streaming, he was like, all of a sudden, those, like a $5,000 check he would get every time they would play with his, his name written by, those would completely go away. So you're, you have people who are, especially if you're living in LA, let's say you're, if you're just a staff writer, you're making, let's say, 75 grand a year. Uh, and with bonuses, you're making about 100. Now you're dipping down below that 75. So you got people who are writing on successful shows who have, they basically have to live with a roommate in LA. <laughs> so you're like, it makes, it just, financially, it makes no sense you're getting screwed. And someone's getting all that money and it's all the executives who are getting all this money as usual yeah. for doing a lot of nothing, but making backroom deals to make them more money. Yeah, you know, selling it to Spotify so they can pay people no money. <laughs> exactly. They were selling yeah. it to Netflix so they can pay people no money. It's the same thing in the music. Music industry is like, what are you guys doing? Like Prince used to say, what are all those guys in the corporate? Like they don't know the difference between a, a groove and, 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 you know, and asphalt. They don't know anything. Like, what, what do they know about being a musician? I, I, I saw something like a talk with Prince was just slamming the people in, mm -hmm. in the industry and saying, what did they, they don't know a groove, groove if it hit them over the head. They don't know anything about music. And they're going to tell me about music. It's like, he was going off. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I totally get it because I mean, it's especially from like Prince. What do they know about writing? They know nothing, and and, and 
generally speaking, like I, I think the AI, because the, the industry, that's a, a big part of the strike. Like they want to keep that AI as something they can use. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think for comedy, it really, I don't think AI is good enough because comedy is exceedingly human and it's an innate reaction to laugh. Mm-hmm. And AI, AI can't do that. They might get lucky and do like one out of five or something, but they can't consistently like give you laughs on in a show. But if you have something like Law and Order or all those CSIs, yeah, that AI because those things are so yeah, they're just complete. They're they're creating drama and it's really simple drama. AI could do that all day, which is part of the industry's fault because those shows might have like twelve or fifteen writers writing something that is. You need one person to write this thing, but you have a staff where you're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to, and you're pretty much putting out crap. That's where the AI is really gonna <laughs> bite them in the butt. But like, there's no AI that's yeah, gonna do Chappelle's show or do Larry David. Yeah. Yeah, I think like, if you wanna do something like a classic type of writing, like a Rod Sterling, you know, science yeah. fiction level stuff, if you get into like really good, science fiction stories that I just mm-hmm. don't think it's going to have the creativity to have the imagination to do the star Trek no. kind of space, 1999 star Wars type of ideas there. Like there's no template because we're trying to do something unknown or they're taking social commentary and throwing it into fic, you know, science fiction. That's yeah. always been the kind of thing that I liked about star Trek because star Trek would mm-hmm. kind of lose Leonard Nimoy as the subterfuge for race relations. It's like, so he's like, Oh, you green blooded, alien you know bones is always doing racist things against him it is yeah. always making these racist statements and i think spock was kind of like the honorary black guy <laughs> pretty much and slammed all day yeah and that's why he had to be so calm all the time he basically had to be the jackie robinson just like no we want no aggression from you <laughs> just take the game be nice yeah <laughs> that's what he had to be take everybody out he, yeah yep. he could take everybody out you'd have one episode where he kind of loses cool and then show the fact mm-hmm. that he's stronger than everybody on the whole ship and he could just yeah. wipe everybody out. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. I remember that episode and I didn't think about that because he's, he's really the number two and he should be number one. Like he's looking at Kirk like, why are you? Why are you the captain of the ship? <laughs> why, yeah, why are you yeah. captain? He's like, I got a better brain. I'm stronger. I can think faster. I can do everything better than you. Yeah. And you make a lot of mistakes, Kirk. You're, mm-hmm. you're always putting mistakes to almost blow up the ship like every episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a commentary. That's a commentary on America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but he, he, yeah. you're the guy, right? You're the guy because you're the familiar guy. You got, you know, you got the look. You got that yep. all American look, but you almost blew up the Enterprise like 99 times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every every other week, you almost blow, blowing it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it just seems today we're kind of living in a, in a in a in a in the negative zone, twilight zone world, where you know it seems like the the, the I, I heard somebody say this about the Supreme Court. They've created gerrymandered decisions that fit their opinion. That they've yeah. done, and and actually they're they're they're, they're not following stare decisis. They're not following like hundreds of years of, 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 of the law, the way it's supposed to be, they're taking, creating these new precedents that make no sense. It's like a gerrymandered voting, voting district. It doesn't make sense. It's like highly convoluted to get where they want to go. 
Yeah, it's like that they have their own perspective. They have their conservative leaning, and they're trying to take the entire country in that direction. And they they're they, they're not doing it in a way that's law abiding. Especially that that thing I heard about the the woman who didn't want to make I thought it was graphic design or was like cakes or something for yeah. people who weren't uh, heterosexual. And it, and like they had the case went all the way up to them, and they found out it's not even a real case. They just made up the case, and then the Supreme Court voted on it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like a theoretical case. It was fake. It was created created by a neoconservative group. Made a fake uh, theoretical case. Actually used the guy's name, and then they went to reporters went to the guy and said, "Did you actually bring that?" It's like no. And so they actually, and so people are saying that there should be some kind of consequence. This is the problem with the founders. They assume mm -hmm. they they you know they can build this branch of government that has no checks and balances on it. There are people yeah. looking at it. It's like, how could a human being like you guys just came away from Henry VIII and you know that that can be a problem. And then you create a court of like nine Henry VIII's that don't have any kind yeah. of control over them other than they're supposed yeah. to do right. How does that make any sense? Yeah. I've, <laughs> I've never understood that idea of like you have a job that you can't lose ever. Even for teachers, I'm like teachers who had I remember in college having t teachers who had tenure. You couldn't do anything with them and they made bad decisions and it was like there was no there's nothing you can do we had i remember because i was electrical engineering there was one guy thaggard at florida state he had been to the moon there's a building named after him on florida state's campus and uh, at our engineering school people kept telling me do not take thaggard for uh circuits and systems too don't do it i'm like why not they said because last semester he had 36 students and he failed 35 of them Oh, and this wasn't like a yeah, this wasn't an introductory course. This was like your last year or so of electroengineering. I'm like, there's no way you can fail that many. There's no way students were that bad. But because of his reputation, no one ever challenged him. Deans, nothing. They're like, oh, you failed 35. You guys got to do better. Like it's uh, same thing with the court. Like there's nothing yeah, you can do. If they do bad. Yeah. Exactly. And, I mean, that's the problem. It makes no sense to have a body that, you know, it has a like okay your ethics rule and there is like the one rule is the ethics rule and yeah. then people are saying well how are you supposed to enforce it right and so supposedly, supposedly they're supposed to report their 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 gifts <clears throat> and they, yeah. and then they didn't do it so then okay well that if that's the one rule applies to them what's supposed to happen and then they don't have any real evidence of them ever really enforcing it so then nope. it's like in the law they suddenly say, well, if we never had to deal with like a monuments clause with like Trump, yeah. there's a rule saying that you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to take money, right? Mm -hmm. But because they never had really any cases, they say, well, we don't know what to do because we never had a real, a real case. Well, I bet if it was a black guy, you would know what to yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you would find some accountability. You would find, there would be a fine, yeah. there would be some time, it would be something, they, they'd find something. Yeah. Yeah, they make new laws. I mean, so by, they, they, what I don't understand, they say, well, we never really enforced this law and then sometimes what black people they make new laws that allow you to put somebody in jail for 20 years for like pot or something and then uh -huh. that's a new law and they they start putting putting people in they never did anybody put the first guy in they don't have any history of using that law but then when there's something for some executor they're like well we don't know we never really used that so we shouldn't do that so it's like it's, it's a double standard across the board you, you start seeing this double standard with class and race and sex and then 
then you get Robert saying, oh, people should respect us. You know, you, you have to de deserve respect. You don't get respect yes, when you do gerrymandered decisions that make no sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a whole history. I remember I was, I was studying for something. It was the, that, that crack law where it was like, you had the, like the, the sins for crack versus cocaine was a hundred times worse. It was because some senator from, I think it was Childs yeah. or something from Florida, they, he asked a question of like some expert, like, is crack a hundred times stronger than cocaine? He's like, the guy was like, um, it's stronger, but I don't know about a hundred times. He's like, well, I think it is. And then he passed the law and then he's sending everyone to all these huge sentences for crack and i'm like just off of his yeah, his thought <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know why but all of a sudden they, they, that got through really easy just like oh crack's bad got to get it out of here got to get all these black people put away making money for us making license plates and whatnot in jail yeah but you yeah. find somebody at studio 54 with a line in the bathroom and you grab him and like he gets like oh you know you, you need to go to rehab and he doesn't yeah. get a sentence at all you know it's not all he's got psychological problems so he's got to go to therapy with the other mm -hmm. guy they find him on the street like you're five years ten years that's it <laughs> you know you're still the twinkie yeah. you get five years you still a mm -hmm. million dollars from somebody's like uh mortgage you you you, uh, you 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 sell the house you steal the deed you go oh, you slap on the wrist <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah for white collars like you like but you still the a, a, a candy bar in a 7-Eleven and the mm -hmm. guy freaking gets for, you know, third time he's boom, he's done. You know, he's yeah. like, the other guy stole all these people's mortgages, nothing. Yeah, no one from that whole again. Yep. Just, just <laughs> go to a different company or change the company name. Yeah. All those guys with the housing crisis, no one did any time. And they all, they all got their bonuses in the end too. Yeah. 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 So he has to start looking at it. It's like, oh, well, India's a caste system. Well, it looks like we got a caste system too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, everyone, everyone, America's got dirt. I remember there's a great scene. I remember in uh, Lord of War with Nick Cage. He's over in Africa and it's set in the 90s. And there's two African guys running this hotel. He checks in the hotel and they're watching the OJ Simpson trial. And one guy turns, oh, he's like, when I go to the Medica, I will not live in Brentwood. And I was like, oh, that, that line was always stuck in my head because of that. Yeah. <laughs> they know they know America's America's pretty nice, but not all of it. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you go to every city, you've got you know, you go to like Boston, and you got you got you know, you got your own certain areas. You know, you got yeah. you got South Boston. You know, I was a kid, and I went to March from Springfield, Mass, to South Boston for some uh, St. Patrick's Day. And we're, uh, we're a black marching band from Springfield, Mass. Okay. We go to South Boston, and our music teachers didn't seem to understand what South Boston was about, right? So he goes and brings a black marching, marching band into South Boston, and we get, like, rocks and stuff thrown at us. And we're like, he's like, what's happened? It's like, do you not understand? And the, you know what what the dynamic is? <laughs> yeah, obviously not. No, not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah. You got to be aware where you, where you are. But I guess some people aren't fully aware of where they are. But, yeah, lots of a lot of people. A lot of, I had a lot of coaches who were like that. We play 
remember the high school, we play certain schools and our coach would look like it'd be an all white area. And it's an area where like even the refs, like people in the crowd would be like, y'all black folks going to have a hard time today because this area, like they just <laughs> did not like black folks and you're playing basketball. So they really don't like you. And our coach is looking at us like, why are we getting any calls? And I remember telling him in the third quarter, I'm like, because they don't like us because we're black. He's like, oh, that can't be true. Just play harder. I'm like, all right, buddy. <laughs> I can't tell you anything. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's like my, I, think my, I think my band director figured it out when the rock almost hit him. And then he said, oh, I guess we got to pack it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they gotta, get, they, they gotta get the black treatment for them to understand what's really happening. But, uh, yeah, they suddenly realize like, oh, there's a problem here. It's like, oh, you, you, you fit, maybe, maybe there is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But an empathy gap. That's why I was like, like we're supposed to all be human beings, but there's this empathy gap that you're like, okay, you don't think. And then it's like really uh, probably one of the last things I'll talk about is just the idea. I saw something about um, like the Tulsa riot. Yeah. Um, we, you know, where, where, where like a whole black area was like wiped out. Right? And there's some yeah. people, some politicians or some school board people that say, oh, you can't teach that because they might make the other, some kids upset. It's okay, wait. So you don't want to teach real history because it's going to make somebody upset that something bad happened, but you don't, you know, you, like you don't teach the Holocaust. Like, why can't you teach it? Like, it's going to make some people yeah. upset, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like there was a 9-11, never forget. But if bad stuff happens to black and brown people, oh, they forget about that real fast. Yeah. If they get these people and say these mothers for patriot mothers or whatever start saying liberty yeah, mom for liberty yeah. republican group just says they can't yeah they can't they can't teach anything about rosa parks you can't teach anything about snick you can't teach anything about you know Megar evers because you might make um some kids feel like oh, the maybe the black kids don't like you or maybe the black kids will get up will get mad and hurt my kids because we're teaching about well maybe you learn a lesson from history that you shouldn't you shouldn't treat people bad <laughs> yeah so you can't do that because you gotta you guys say, oh, it's this Mount Rushmore, everybody's great, and it's like bow to the bow to the kings, you know, that's it. Yeah. It's a load of hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean that's we we gotta live in a in a world that's getting uh kinda out of hand. And but I think it's like as black folks, we always figure out something. Cause we've always had to kind yeah. of make do. But yeah. uh that what what's your kind of kind of uh, outlook for for what you're doing in the future for like your creativity and your your outlook for trying to make progress in this kind of era of like uh somewhat stag- stagnant uh kind of diversify in a lot of different areas so i got books on this side doing stand up over here music production with other people so it's kind of like a diverse trying to come at it from kind of every angle i can creatively uh and to put everything out that i can especially nowadays because there's so much content out there. Yeah. I'm just kind of churn out more and more and more and more and more. That's, that's my plan, at least right now. I think that's a good approach is like this idea that I came up with was this idea of expansive. So the idea of expansive, like it comes to the music, like I'm not just going to play one genre. 
if I want to play, if I want to do funk, I can do funk. I can do hip hop. I can do punk. I can do rock. I can do whatever. And the same thing mm-hmm. with the podcast. I'm not just going to talk to musicians. I'm going to talk to a very expansive set of guests. So I think once you realize that you kind of live in a world where you can have this open-ended, less niche, you know, and if, I guess if you're in a niche and you think you can do that, but the problem with these niches, they get burned out. And so it's good yeah. to kind of have a low hand into everything. And, and, and it's just, I, I just feel that that's a, a better approach to kind of throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, because if you're, if you're stuck in one little niche, if, it, if that thing burns out, it's kind of like boy bands. I mean, every label always knows you got a boy band, you got four years because you're trying to get girls from 13 to 17. As soon as a girl goes to college, she ain't messing with that boy band group anymore. And I think that's the way a lot of the corporates, yeah. they want you to be in this real little niche for a short amount of time and they get rid of you. And that, that's, that's really how they, how they do it because they know the sound or whatever it is you're doing is only going to be good for this short period of time. So if you diversify yourself and make actual art, you'll be okay long-term. At least I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When you think about the Beatles, they were like the ultimate boy band. They started as like a boy band and then became mm-hmm. like a progressive art rock band. By the time they were done, they've gotten into like, they kind of set them the, the mold for the Pink Floyds and the Genesis and all those kind of art rock bands. Look at yeah. Abbey Road and Arch and Peppers. That's not what help was. That, that they went from totally different type of structure as a band. And then the industry doesn't figure out, it's like, why are you trying to pigeonhole people when that the archetype of the whole industry isn't pigeonholed? They're like all, all over the map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good way to be. If you're all over the map, it's hard to get rid of you. If you only got one little, one little speck that can flick you away. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. yeah, it's better to have your hands and everything, so. But thank you again for being on the show. I want well, everybody to check out HDHD.biz. Uh That will be clickable. We ask people to click the links of all of the guests that come on the show so you can get more information and detail on how to get into what, what they've been talking about here. But thank you again for being on the Family Life the Ghost podcast. We had a really uh, interesting conversation. And I hope everybody uh, yeah, has a good day today. Thank you.